Father in heaven, we want to thank you for, for Jesus today. Lord, you have brought us all here to this Canadian Youth Conference, Eastern Canada Youth Conference, to experience the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. As we look at our society and we see that the devil is doing everything he can to crowd out the work of your Spirit in our lives, we ask that you would teach us how to deal with these things. There are elements of the world that have been creeping into the church, and we always see them, but we don't always know how to answer. And in our own hearts, oftentimes there are, are moments when we are weak and we fall. Forgive us for those times right now. We ask that you would make us pure. If there is anything in us today that would keep us from experiencing the Holy Spirit's power, we just ask that you would remove it. Help us to see Jesus in his entirety. Make us into your image, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you think of when you think of purity? First thing that comes to your mind, what is it? Clean. Think of cleanness, okay? What else? Innocence, purity, okay. Innocence, is, that's a good, good answer. Ken. Holiness. Holiness, excellent. We're actually going to look at that today. David. Undefiled. Undefiled. Yeah, that is the title of our, our seminar, so good, good answer. <laughs> I'm glad you're all wearing name tags so I can just call you out. Um, first thing that comes to your mind, purity. What else? Holiness, cleanness, innocence. Undefiled because you, you read. Natural. Natural? So like it, the world natural or yes, the way God created everything? Okay. So pure, like the pure world that God created. Nothing man-made. Man I like that. Soap. Huh? Soap. Soap. <laughs> soap is pure. There can be no dirt on soap. Can you wash soap? <laughs> no. Okay. Soap is, I guess we could say it's pure. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of First John. We're going to let the Bible define our definition of purity. First John chapter, what chapter did I say? Okay, I didn't say it. First John chapter 3. This is probably a verse that you could all quote from memory, at least the first one. First John chapter 3 verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. And then we're going to zone in on verse 2 and 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. So in this sense, when we look at the people who are living before the coming of Jesus, right? The people who are going to see Jesus when he comes are going to be living a life of purity. 
the Bible says that we will see Jesus as he is. And then in the next verse it says, as he is pure, right? So if we want to see the purity of Jesus, if we want to see the pure form of our Lord and Savior when he comes, to be able to stand to meet him, then our lives have to be purified, right? Does this just mean sexual purity? Like if I abstain while I'm single and, and don't sleep with other women while I'm married, that I'll be pure. Is that what the text is saying? What does it say? The purifying himself is an active verb. It means that it's not just a one-time thing or you are pure if you don't do these things. It's a continual process of being pure, right? Let me see if these are in order. This is the definition that the dictionary gives of purity. Purity is the condition or quality of being pure, freedom from anything that debases, contaminates, or pollutes. So in other words, the purity or the impurities in the world, the impurities that we get from sin or from society that is degraded by sin, all of those things have to be done away with in our lives if we are going to be able to stand to see Jesus come, right? The, uh, the Greek word hagnos for, for purity, it doesn't just mean sexual purity. It does mean sexual and moral purity. But it doesn't just mean that. Hagnos means freedom from anything that is debasing. I wrote it down here. Pure from all carnality. All of the sinful flesh, the sinful propensities that we have. Modest, clean, pure from every fault. And in short, it just refers to sinlessness of life. When we're going to meet Jesus, when he comes the second time, are we going to have anything in our characters that is sinful? No, right? Because everything sinful when he comes is going to burn by the brightness of his coming. So everything in my life that is not in harmony with the scriptures and with the character of God is going to, be, is going to have to be purified. That is the biblical definition of purity. It is not just, you know, what we read from books like Every Man's Battle or Every uh, Woman's Desire or I forget some of these other books they have that deal with purity. It is freedom from the sexual sins, but it's also freedom from every sin. That is the biblical definition that we are going to work on with purity. So if in your life today... You look at our topic, our presentation, you think, I don't have any problem sleeping around. Probably most of you don't. I don't have any of those issues. The Bible paints the picture that if we're going to be pure, it's not just those things. Selfishness just needs to be cleansed as much as, as adultery. You understand what I'm saying? So when we take the concept of biblical purity, we have to apply the whole concept to our lives. We're not going to be just weeding out the sexual sins. Many of us, most of us here, because of the group that we're in, probably aren't even like that anyway. But we all have imperfections and pollution in our lives that needs to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. So that is what we're talking about. If uh, we can expound on this a little more in Psalm chapter 24. 
Psalm chapter what? 24 verse, we'll start in verse 3. We looked at in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3, that when Jesus comes, the people who are going to be standing to see him will be pure in their lives. And David, he kind of asks the same question or poses the same question in this prophecy about Jesus as the Messiah ascending into heaven. But in verse 3, he asks the same question, Who will ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who may stand in his holy place? It's a good question, right? Who is going to be able to stand and see Jesus who, is, who are going to be the people in heaven? He answers the question in the next verse. He who has what? Clean hands and a pure heart. Who has not lifted up his soul to an idol or to vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. So this is something that we can add to our already working definition of purity is that those who are going to be seeing Jesus when he comes are going to have clean hands, a pure heart, and they're going to receive the righteousness of Jesus. Does it make sense? It doesn't mean those who, you know, just try to live right but don't have righteousness. It doesn't mean those that try to be right but don't do right. It means those people who see Jesus are going to be the ones that have both clean hands and a pure heart and have Christ's righteousness. All three of those work together to form the purity of an individual. You cannot live right without being right. You cannot be right without the righteousness of Christ. Does it make sense? Have I lost anybody? Alright, so our seminar, we're going to focus on these three elements in the next three consecutive sessions. What does it mean to have clean hands? What does it mean to have a pure heart? And what does it mean, what does it look like to have Christ's righteousness covering us? Amen? Amen. That's what we're going to So that's just our brief introduction. We're going to get right into it. And um, if you have your Bibles, you can keep them handy in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. But first, let me just tell you a brief story. Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, as I, as I share this story, there was a, a man who was a Christian. He went to church every, uh, he wasn't an Adventist, but he went to church every Sunday. And I don't know exactly how it happened, but he kind of was in a low point in his spiritual life. He had a hard time, you know, reading the Bible and, and praying. And, um, but he still went to church, you know, with his wife and his kids and his family. But um, at work, he had met this, this woman. And uh, they, you know, began to, to talk and you know how the stories go from here. Um, so he just got those butterflies that you get, you know, when you meet somebody you really like that he shouldn't have gotten because he was married. And, and he begged her for, for her number. And uh, so like... You know, like at first you're like, no, I'm not giving you my number. But if somebody begs and asks and pleads with you, finally you're just like, okay, you might give them the rejection hotline number. But, <laughs> but she, gave the, <laughs> she gave him his, her number. And then he kept calling and calling and calling and calling until she agreed to meet with him. And they made up this little routine where, you know, they would drive to a certain neighborhood and 
Um, they do all of these loops to see if they're being followed or really elaborate stuff. And, and, um, and then they would meet and they would sleep together and, and then they would go home. And, um, and one day he was sitting at church and the sermon just really got a hold of him. It gripped his heart and he realized that everything he had done up until that point in, his, in this illicit relationship was wrong and sinful. He realized how much he had hurt God. He realized how much he had hurt his family. And um, so he called this woman up and they met in this parking lot. She got in and she didn't know exactly what was going on, but basically all he wanted to do was apologize and say, you know, we can't see each other anymore. I'm sorry for leading you in this way. But she began to cry and she was like, you know, why did you do this if you think it's so wrong? Like, what, what happened? And he began to explain that why he believed it was wrong and, and what had taken place in his life that got him to the point where he was willing to commit adultery with another woman. And he said that little by little in this low spiritual state, the world had began to creep into his life. From TV to movies, the things that he would watch, to the things that he would read about in the news, those things began to crowd out his time that he would spend studying God's Word. And as this goes little by little, you know, the devil doesn't just throw sin at you, but he entices you. And once you get to that point when the setup is perfect, um, or the time, you know, that the devil has placed everything so that every doubt in your mind, every objection will just go away smoothly and you'll, you know, embrace sin wholeheartedly like he did. Um, all of that happened because he said he lost his hold on, on God, but he wanted to get back. And so when he told this woman why, obviously she couldn't understand because she wasn't a Christian. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But little by little, today in our society, we see people, we see people who have been once spiritual giants sliding into sin. Have you seen that happen? You see people who you look up to or who at least know better doing things that they shouldn't do. In our society, it's very easy. We have the TV, we have movies, we have the internet, we have newspapers, we have tabloids. Everywhere you go, billboards, driving, we are bombarded with suggestive material and sometimes even more than that. You can't go anywhere. I actually didn't see any here in Toronto when I was driving down the roads, any billboards, but I haven't been to any stores. Not it's not allowed. Praise the Lord for Toronto. <laughs> but, um, but pretty much, if you drive anywhere in the world, besides Canada, <laughs> and go to any supermarket in the world, you're going to see at least something that has suggestive material, right? It's hard to escape. In... Um, in Europe, it's even more difficult some places. How do we deal with these things? When the world is creeping into the church, when the world is even creeping into our own lives. And you can probably honestly say, if you look at your own life and, and ask yourself, am I as strong of a Christian as I was um, before whatever event happened? Before, you know, television, before... At one point in your life, you might be able to say that I was a stronger Christian then than I am now. 
And if you trace the line of progression or degression, there will be evident steps along the way. I don't know what they are. They're different in everybody's circumstance. But you'll be able to see clearly if you analyze your own life. You'll know. The Bible has hundreds of verses on purity. We're just going to look at this one chapter in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, Corinth was a time, I believe, Paul was dealing with a church who had many of the same problems that our society does today. All of the same suggestive material, the sex-saturated culture that we live in, was the same culture that Paul was dealing with in Corinth. Okay, I've got a, a little quotation here. This is about the city of Corinth. Just let's read this. She had a reputation for commercial prosperity. I've highlighted all of the things that deal with the city itself. Commercial prosperity, but she was also a byword for evil living. The very word Corinthia Zathai, to live like a Corinthian, had become part of the Greek vocabulary. It was part of their language. So they could say this word, and everyone would know that's what it's like to live, to be a Corinthian. To live like a Corinthian had become part of the Greek language, and it meant to live with drunken and immoral debauchery. Alien, the late Greek writer, tells us that if a Corinthian was ever shown in a Greek play, he was depicted as drunk. This is the society. The very name Corinth was a synonym with debauchery, and there was one source of evil in the city, which was known all over the civilized world. Everybody had heard about this. Above the Isthmus towered a hill of Acropolis, and it, on it stood the great temple of Aphrodite, the goddess of love. To that temple, there were attached 1,000 priestesses who were sacred prostitutes, and in the evening they descended from Acropolis and plied their trade on the streets of Corinth until it became a Greek proverb, it is not every man who can afford a trip, a journey to Corinth. In addition to these cruder sins, there flourished far, far more recondite vices which had come in with the traders and sailors from the ends of the earth until Corinth became not only a synonym for wealth and luxury, drunkenness and debauchery, but also filth. This is the group of people that Paul is dealing with. People who have become or have come out of this society and into the early Christian church. Now let's be honest with ourselves and just answer a couple basic questions. Is the church a place for perfect people? Is everybody in the church perfect? No. no. Not today, right? In our society, people have struggles with everything, with drugs, with alcohol, with, with, um, with sex, with selfishness, with pride, with smaller things that often go unnoticed um, with our motives. All of these things are things that we deal with today. But if we look at a society very similar to ours, do you think that everybody in the church was perfect that Paul was writing to? There might have been people who were struggling with some of these very things coming to church every day, right? And in chapter 6, there's a little situation going on in the, in the beginning of the chapter where the Corinthians, they're having these arguments with each other and they're taking each other to court over it. And Paul is saying, you know, why would you take them to court? How come, you know, these non-Christians are judging you when you can just handle it yourselves? And in verse, I guess I should get to the right chapter. In verse 9, Paul says, do not 
Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. The unrighteous are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. All of, it doesn't matter what society tells you. It doesn't matter if the culture says these things are okay. It doesn't matter if the prostitutes come down from the hill at night and everyone does it because it's been going on for hundreds of thousands of years. Excuse me, I don't believe in evolution. Hundreds of years. It doesn't mean that it's okay. Do not be deceived, he says. Verse 9. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. All of these people, this list of practices that he just mentioned, the kingdom of heaven will be pure from all of those. Is God going to give heaven over to people who are drunk? Is he going to give it over to people who, whose business practices are not honest? No. I mean, he says it very clear. Extortioners, drunkards, covetous, people who, who covet. We often don't talk about covet, coveting. The, the message is clear. These people are not going to be the ones in heaven. And then he goes on to say in verse 12, and such were some of you. In other words, some of these people had these very same sins and struggles in the church that the world was doing freely and openly. There are, there are three things that I want to just touch on today in this seminar that the Adventist church is dealing with. And the first one, if we look at in the first list in verse, verse 9, be not deceived neither fornicators, idolaters, adulteresses, nor homosexuals or sodomites inherit the kingdom of God. The, the word fornicator is, is the word pornos in Greek, which is where we get our English word what? Pornography. There are people in, in the Corinthian society who, who would basically use pornography as a way to find fulfillment in their lives. And essentially, this has become one of the greatest plagues in our society. Um, I actually have a few statistics that I can share with you, since we all like statistics. Um, and I, I couldn't believe this when I heard it. 12% of all websites on the internet are dedicated to pornography. Of all the websites in the world, 12% are dedicated to just pornography. That's mind-blowing to me. To think that our world is so wicked that that 12% could be dedicated just to that. You know? There are 25% of all search requests on the internet. Everyone in the world who types in a search, 12, 25% of all of those requests are, are porn searches. That's crazy. 35% of all monthly downloads of everything on the internet, 35% is related to porn. The world has a problem with pornography. It is a multi-billion dollar industry today. And sadly enough, in the Adventist church, people are struggling 
with the same things. I can tell you um, stories. I work as a, a chaplain on a university campus, and students come, come to me sometimes with things that I would rather not hear. And sometimes you have to deal with, with very ugly things, and sometimes they're very simple things. But I remember one time I was dealing with somebody who had a struggle with pornography. And, and in the essence, the person knew the biblical stance where it was and, and, and how his life was not in harmony with the Bible. But he just couldn't overcome. And uh, you know, how do you, how do you help somebody who's addicted, who knows but just can't overcome? We're actually going to talk about that in the next seminar. But uh, as we prayed together, I realized for the first time that even Adventist young people, dedicated godly people, have struggles here in this area that often don't even come out. We're too afraid to admit it. We're too afraid to, to share with somebody else that we need help because we don't like to feel vulnerable. I mean, we can all admit it. To feel vulnerable, to place yourself in a position where somebody can, can judge your heart and make judgments upon you as a person is not a comfortable thing. We don't like it. I'm a very private person. I don't like to share what's going on with other people. And for me to do that, you know, it takes a lot. But for somebody who's struggling with something very serious, and, and even though it's so widespread in our society, it's still very looked down upon. Nobody goes out there and admits, right, that they're addicted to pornography. Well, the statistics don't stop there. 37% of pastors in one study said porn was a struggle. That's crazy. Pastors. People who lead the church. These are not just Adventist pastors, although it is in Adventism. 51% of pastors admitted that it was a temptation. And if you think that men are the only ones who struggle with this, six out of 10 women admit to being addicted to pornography. This is something that cuts across cultural barriers, it cuts across religious barriers, and it cuts across gender barriers. This is something that we need to deal with. And our society, our church culture, allows us or lets us feel comfortable just hiding it and not dealing with it. You know, we do it, we, say, we pray, Lord, forgive me, and we put it on the back burner because we, we believe that Jesus will forgive us. But then the next day or the day after, you know, we're back doing the same things. We pray again. And it's the cycle of, of sin and repentance, sin and repentance, sin and repentance. And, and we're addicted so often we... we at least the people that I've mentioned so far have found themselves powerless to change. And um, Paul is talking to people who experience this for themselves. He says, don't be deceived. These people aren't in heaven. There will be no adulterers, adulteresses, no acts of sexual immorality in heaven. And we need to be preparing here on earth to live like we're going to be living in heaven. So how do we deal with these problems? Another problem that's been coming up, or let me just read you this, this quote. This is from Reverend Richard Land from the Christian Science Monitor. For 25 years, I would have said that the pro-life issue is the most pressing threat 
to American morality, but pornography has overtaken it. More people's lives are being destroyed on a daily basis by addiction to pornography than through abortion. Abortion is the issue that changes the race for a president in America. I mean, you can win or lose an election based on what you believe on abortion. I don't know what it's like in Canada. <laughs> but more people, and I think he's right, more people's lives, their marriages, their home life, their spiritual lives are being destroyed by these practices. And this is the big issue in our church. An issue that nobody wants to deal with. We're afraid of what the consequences might be. But let me tell you, it's better to have personal integrity and come out openly than to suffer all of your life with an addiction that you feel like there's no help to. It doesn't matter if it's not pornography, if it's alcohol, if it's drugs. It doesn't matter if you're addicted to TV. And yeah, people are addicted to TV. Or something else, you know? For some people, good, compelling, dramatic novels are addicting. They suck your time. Another thing that Paul says in verse 9, it says, Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulteresses, nor, what's the next one? Nor homosexuals. Homosexuality, I don't know if you know this, but has been on the rise within the Adventist church too. Do you know any Adventists? Have you met any who are homosexual? I have some Adventist friends who, who, um, who I used to, you know, I've been very good friends with. But as we get older, we've kind of not kept in touch as well as we should. And, um, and I, I know two of them who have become homosexual. And the problem is that oftentimes, because the Bible is so clear, I mean, there is not a text in the Bible that says, you know, that leaves any question on whether homosexuality is a sin or not. There's not one. And because of that, oftentimes as a church, as pastors, administrators, and teachers and counselors, when people struggle with these things, we kind of can come down on them. Like, no, no, absolutely not, never. And if you struggle with these things, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell. That's, unfortunately, because it's true, sometimes we can come down and say it too harsh. And so I remember talking to one of my friends, and, and he was saying that, you know, and he's left the church since this time. Let me just tell you that. He said, I left the church because there's, no, there's really no place for, for us. We're judged. We're looked down upon. They condemn us. They, they don't sit next to us. That everyone is suspicious. Like all of the thoughts that we have all the time are just, you know, malicious and, and sexual. But it's not true. We're human beings. And there's no place for us in the church. Even though, and even though this person said, I know that the Bible doesn't support it, this is who I am. What am I going to do? What are we going to do when we talk to our friends who are dealing with these things? You probably know somebody, if, at least not an Adventist, in the world. What do we do even when we're trying to convert and win our homosexual friends who are not Adventists? What do we do as a church? The Bible clearly says it's wrong. Where does that leave them? It is Christianly appropriate for Christians who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation to continue to participate in the same sex. Sorry, this is a question. I read it wrong. Is it Christianly appropriate for Christians who experience themselves as having a homosexual orientation 
to continue to participate in same-sex erotic activity? That's the question. Is it? The answer is no. It's right here. The only one who was entitled to cast a stone instead charged the recipient of his mercy to go and sin no more. You know the, the Bible reference to that. This is from Hayes, page 401. It is no more appropriate for a homosexual Christian to persist in homosexual activity than it would be for heterosexual Christians to persist in fornication or adultery. You get the, the parallel he's making. If I am a homosexual, he said it's, it's no more appropriate for me to have homosexual activity than it would be for, um, for Chris here to have adultery in a heterosexual relationship. You understand, right? Both of those are wrong. So that puts us a little bit on the same page. This is the same author. Despite the smooth illusions perpetuated by mass culture in the United States, sexual gratification is not a sacred right. And celibacy is not a fate worse than death. It's okay to not have sex. It, you're not going to die, believe me. Surely it is a matter of some interest for Christian ethics that both Jesus and Paul lived without sexual relationships. Heterosexually oriented persons are also called to abstinence from sex unless they marry. The only difference, admittedly, admittedly a salient one, in the case of homosexually oriented persons is that they do not have the option, option of homosexual marriage. So where does that leave them? It leaves them in precisely the same situation as a heterosexual who would like to marry but cannot find an appropriate partner. And there are many people out there who find themselves in that situation. There are many people who want to get married but can't find the right person. Summoned to a difficult life, costly obedience, while groaning for the redemption of our bodies. The church is a place for homosexual people. And instead of casting our judgments and our condemnations at people, we need to teach them that if they have these tendencies, they, they can't marry. It puts them on the same place. If, if I am single and I have not found the right person, I do not have permission to go out there and have sex with anyone who I want. That's the same. They have no permission from the Bible and they're in the same situation as a heterosexual who would like to find a partner but cannot marry. These, these things in the church, we have, to, we have to deal with them. The, the time where we can sweep things under the rug and just say that, you know, it's wrong and change your habits or your attitude, otherwise you're not going to be in heaven. Those days are over. You never win anybody into the church by that. It's important to understand what the Bible teaches. But it's also important to know how to relate to people and to teach them these things. The church doesn't teach this as at large. We believe it, but in practice it doesn't always come out that way. You understand what I'm saying? Is this practical? Yes. What time does this session end? 10.30? 10.30? Okay, we have, we have plenty of time. Paul goes on, 
look at, uh, let's skip down to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. And he begins to say these, these things that are kind of in a cultural context. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food for the stomach and, and stomach for the food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. In other words, what Paul, what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 13, food for the stomach, stomach for the food, he's just talking about in a culture that's sex-saturated, this was a common, common phrase that just meant, I'm hungry for sex. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. And then he says in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The third thing that is pervading Adventism today, do you want to know what that is? It's bad relationships. Do you know somebody in a bad relationship? Have you been in a bad relationship? Look at the connection. Verse, pay attention verse 19. Your body is the temple of, of who? The Holy Spirit. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. talking to the same group of people. Paul writes, verse 14 is really when he starts to get into the, to this conversation. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Have you heard this verse before? Okay. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? You, you've always heard this verse in reference to just relationships, probably. The Adventists and non-Adventists shouldn't date together. The verse doesn't just apply in that setting. It, it applies in business. It applies, you can apply it pretty much everywhere. But in this context, we're applying it to relationships, and I'll show you why. Verse 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the what? The temple of the living God. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, we saw that we were the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here it says, you are the temple of God. And if we are the temple of God, what agreement does God have with an idol? That's the question he says. What fellowship does light and darkness have? Can they exist at the same time? Light and darkness, no. So when we look at our relationships with other people, it says, don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Because if the Holy Spirit is in our lives, one or the other will have to go. Either the light or the darkness. Both cannot exist at the same time. But today, and believe me when I tell you that everywhere I go, for the last 12 years that I've been an Adventist, there have been at least one, if not 10, Adventist, non-Adventist couples that I've known in the area that I've lived. I was, uh, I was brought into the Adventist church in 2000. And everybody at 
camp meeting, all the young kids, they all like to date and hook up. And there they, you know, at camp meeting they dated the Adventists. But those relationships only lasted a week because camp meeting was only 10 days. So, so they would meet and they would hook up. You know, they'd meet Friday by Sunday to Sunday. They're, you know, they're saying goodbyes and then you would hear two weeks later, oh, they broke up. But that perpetuated them because they, they had at a young age a longing for relationships. They just uh, kept the cycle. And so, you know, you, you break up, then you find another boyfriend. And pretty soon, many of them found boyfriends or girlfriends out of the church. And little by little, they've left the church. Now, let me ask you a question. What is wrong with dating a non-Adventist? We've heard it all of our lives, probably if you've grown up in the Adventist church. But in reality, what is the big deal? I mean, there are, to all practical purposes, nicer, more good-looking people outside the church. <laughs> okay. I just said that. Yeah, I don't take it back. There are more attractive people outside the church oftentimes, right? And the ones in the church oftentimes aren't even interested. <laughs> right? You I've... try, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want that in the recording. <laughs> uh, is that fair to say? We have good-looking people in the church. Okay. I'm not saying that we don't. But, but many people have a hard time, you know. Or the ones in the church, they're just, you know, they're, they're too conservative, they're too liberal, or they're, we're so picky. Anyway, <clears throat> turn to Genesis chapter 6. I wasn't going to go here, but this is along the same subject. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. It came to pass, when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were what? They were fair or beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. In other words, here you have a group of, of two different groups of people. The sons of God, or the Christians, and the daughters of men, who were the non-Christians, the unbelievers. And they, the Christians or the unbelievers, they were seeing each other and they were saying, man, they look good. Let me get a wife. So they would marry them. And then look at the verse, says the, verse 3, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and afterwards when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. Those were mighty men of old men of renown, and the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. What happened between the, the Spirit of God not always striving with man and wickedness on the earth? You look at the progression, okay? They start hooking up with each other, and then God says, I've got to limit their years. And then they start having kids, and then it's, the earth is just wicked. Okay? In other words, marriage the marriage relationship was so important to God that he realized if unbelievers and believers could live 900 years or 1,000 years, the earth would become so wicked that God would have to destroy everything. So what fellowship does light have with darkness? Nothing. Because God's, God knows that marriage and relationships are the one source of blessing and evil in the world. 
And if they're done right, the earth could, could be like heaven. But done wrong, the earth would be like hell. There is no place for it. And Ellen White has an interesting statement, and I don't have it here with me, but she says that the problem is not with the believer. It gives the unbeliever the assurance and confidence that only belongs to those who love and fear God. You don't understand what that means. That means that we don't worry about the immoral standards of that person rubbing off on us. It's our moral standard that rubs off on them. It tells them that they are okay in their sins. And that perpetuates more evilness and more wickedness. So when you are tempted, or when you know somebody that is dating a non-Adventist in a relationship with them, and they think it's not that bad, or maybe he's you know, taking Bible studies. The issue is not with your salvation. The issue is with that person's salvation. Your morality, your false sense of spirituality rubs off on that person. And it gives him or her a confidence that doesn't even belong to him. God has never told that person that what he's doing or where he is spiritually is okay. But you have told him that he's okay because you have hooked up with him. You understand? It's not him rubbing off on you and you're skipping prayer meeting and going to fool around. It's you rubbing off on him. God instituted marriage before he created the Sabbath. It can be the greatest source of good in this world. But when done wrong, it's the worst. Maybe some of you have parents who grew up Adventist or non-Adventist or one or the other. When I, my family was Catholic, my mom became an Adventist and my dad was a Catholic still and he didn't really go to church. Um, so there was that friction for a while. I mean, before I became an Adventist, there was friction in my home because my mom wanted to do um, the Adventist thing and my dad wasn't that spiritual. He's an Adventist now, praise the Lord. Um, but, but you know, there's that friction. And so for, um, for just a few years, you know, I caught a glimpse of what that was like. And, uh, and it's not a pleasant thing. And many people experience this in their lives, that it's not just you you have to think about, your children. Because when the sons of God saw the daughters of men, they had children, and their children were the wicked ones. <laughs> and God had to destroy the earth in a flood. It says their thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. But if you're still there in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I want you to just notice what connection Paul is, is making. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Verse 15, what accord has Christ with Belial? What part has a believer with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. If we are faithful to God, he has these promises that we will be his children. He will call us his own. He will be a father to us. And then... 
in verse 7, therefore, as a conclusion of all of this, having these promises, the ones that we just read, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. What filthiness is he talking about? The filthiness of light and darkness being mixed together. Of being unequally yoked together with unbelievers. This is the filthiness that he just mentioned. Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The cleansing that he's talking about and the holiness that he's talking about comes from having a relationship with Jesus that is separate from all other earthly distractions. And Paul, he says that you are the temple of God. You are the place where the Holy Spirit dwells. If we want the Holy Spirit's power in our lives, we've got to be 100% for God. That doesn't mean that we can't get married. That doesn't mean that we can't have fun. It just means that whatever we do, we have to have God's glory, God's character in mind for us. We're going just back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're almost done. Our time is almost up. It says, Do not be deceived. Don't you know that the unrighteous don't inherit the kingdom of God? In verse 11, he says, Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Amen? You were this people. In Psalm 51, verse 7, when David sinned, he said, you know, wash me, Lord, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. We need the washing of the Spirit to be clean. The washing comes from the blood of Jesus. And I have a few verses. But for the sake of time, if you want to just write them down, Psalm 51, verse 7. Hebrews 9, 14. 1 John 1, 7 and 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, to wash us clean from all unrighteousness. Titus 3, 4 and 5. We are washed by the blood of Jesus. And then in Acts chapter 22, verse 16, we are washed by baptism. Paul is talking to converts who have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You were sexually immoral. You were politically dishonest but you were washed you were baptized this is not the way Christians behave and this is but you were sanctified you were made holy we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 1 purify yourself from uncleanness perfecting holiness when you decide to clean your life out the Lord does a work and he actually sanctifies you to make you holy. And then it says, but you were justified. Legally, in God's standing, you are perfect. The word justified, a good way to remember it is just as if I'd never sinned. You were made perfect. We've got one more text to look at. We got plenty of time. First Kings chapter 14. You know, David, we already mentioned him. This guy had some problems. 
he was uh, always seeming to get himself in situations where God didn't put him in. One, when he was fleeing Saul, he went to the Philistines, which, you know, in Bible and Spirit of Prophecy are pretty clear that wasn't a good idea. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. He committed murder with, with her husband by killing him. He tried to cover it up. And then in 1 Kings chapter 14, did I say chapter 14? You find that there's a reference to David. Chapter 14, and um, let's just, we'll start in verse 7. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you, and yet you have not been as my servant David who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do, what's the next word? Only what was right in my eyes. Did David do only what was right in God's eyes? No. Right? He committed adultery, murder. He covered it up. But the Bible records his life as doing only, this is after his death, only what God wanted him to do. Only what was right in God's eyes. What's, what's happening here? <laughs> There's a Steps to Christ, page 62. If you give yourself to Christ and accept Him as your Savior, then sinful as your life may have been, for His sake you are accounted righteous. Christ's character stands in place of your character, and you are accepted before God just as if you had never sinned. Amen? If in your life you have found that there are things that cause you to sin, that cause you to stumble, whether sexually, whether selfishness, or whether in school or business, the righteousness of Christ. Jesus is the cleansing agent. But you were washed. But you were justified. But you were sanctified. What does it mean to have clean hands? Just like figuratively when Jesus was being crucified and Pilate washed his hands of the blood of Jesus, symbolically freeing himself of the actions of his death. We wash our hands free from the pollution and the contaminants and the actions of the world. They have no place in the church. We stop doing the things that are sinful. Such were some of you, Paul said, but you were changed. You were washed. And in the church today, there are people who struggle with these things. I mean, they're very real. They're very painful to deal with. But Jesus changes us. If you need that changing, it's not too late. If you have those struggles, it's not too late. What does it mean to have clean hands? It means to live like a Christian. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. What we do directly affects who we are. And in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, the Bible says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, what the Lord requires, to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. We have to do what is right. Even in a culture and a society that says all of these things are okay, we've got to make a decision to do what the Bible says. 
and nothing else. Is that your desire? To do what's right, to live right with God? We're going to talk about in our next session how to be right with God. It's not just what we do, but it has to be who we are. And our heart has to be changed. That's our next session. Why don't we just bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then if there are any questions, we can, we can answer them. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, we want to be right with you. As David, who committed terrible sins in his time, received forgiveness from you, and you looked at his life just as if he'd never sinned, Lord, we want that same experience. We need the righteousness of Jesus to cover us, to make us holy, to sanctify us, and to wash us. We have sin in our lives. It may not be the same sins that the Corinthians were dealing with. Individually, we know what they are. Sometimes they're hard to overcome, but Lord, we ask that Jesus would give us victory. We want to be pure in the eyes of heaven. We want to stand when Jesus comes. So we ask that by your grace today, you would purify our lives and our hearts so that we can see Jesus and live with you eternally, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.